Now we're going to spend some time studying the Bible. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we have black Bibles under the chairs there. We study the Bible every week because we believe that the Bible speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. So we're going to center our time around this book and try to hear from Jesus in the words of this book. We're in a series called Ancient Faith, where we've been taking the outline of Hebrews 11 that says, look back at the Old Testament heroes, and then we're going back to the Old Testament stories and and digging into those stories. So today we're going to be in Genesis chapter 27. So go ahead and open up to Genesis chapter 27. I think that's around page 20 or 21 in the Black Bibles, if you want to open up there. And if you don't have a Bible at home, you can keep that and we'll restock the chairs. We'd love for you to have your own Bible to read. So it's Genesis chapter 27. This week we're calling it Isaac and Jacob. Basically this Hebrews 11 outline just goes through Old Testament heroes of the faith, looking back at them, looking back at their faith. We don't get a lot of material in Hebrews 11, so I'm going to spend most of my material today out of Genesis. We'll look at chapter 25, we'll look at chapter 27, we'll look at chapter 32. We're going to spend most of our time in Genesis 27. What Hebrews tells us is that these guys had faith. And then when we go back and read the stories in Genesis, you're like, I don't know. (laughs) These guys kind of did some shady stuff. So we've got Isaac and Jacob. And the author of Hebrews says, well, at the end of their life, they blessed future generations by faith. So what they were saying is, okay, maybe I haven't lived my life perfectly. Maybe I've wandered. Maybe I've struggled. But I trust that God's going to fulfill his promises. And they blessed a future generation saying, God's going to keep his promises. He's going to do what he said he's going to do. Starting back in Genesis 3, he says a a son is going to come that's going to conquer evil, that's going to defeat the serpent, the dragon. That day is going to come, and those promises get narrowed more and more through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so again, we just have to clarify, when we look back at Old Testament saints, we're not to imitate all of their behaviors. We're looking to see their faith. And as we look, we see some of their mistakes, and we're like, okay, these guys made mistakes like I did, and I can, I can also have faith. I can also trust in God. God is gracious. He worked with them. He can work with me as well. I, th- I thought a great illustration of this was something that I experienced years ago. Uh, we were playing backyard football with some friends from the church when, when my son and friends' sons were little. So the, the kids were like maybe eight, nine, ten years old. Um, it, it's kind of funny, actually. Back at the time, we were meeting in a school, and we would set up churches, uh, set up church every Sunday in a school and have to set up chairs and stuff. And so they, these were like the early deacons of our church, a bunch of eight-year-old boys, right? We would feed them donuts, and they would set up chairs for us. But anyway, we were, we were playing football in the backyard of a friend, um, this other army officer, just really big guy, right? And uh, we were, I think we had had it set up where like I was, an, I was a quarterback, and he was a quarterback, and the boys were divided up, but we couldn't run the ball, right? Because we were the big adults, we were letting the little boys run the ball. And my friend on the other team, he was noticing that one of the little boys on his team just wasn't making any progress, right? Every time he'd get the ball, he was slower, he was smaller, and he would just get creamed, right? And so my friend, who was uh, just gigantic dude, he's like a big hairy bear, right? <laughs> Maybe 250, 270, I don't know, y'all know him, uh, just this huge guy, right? And he, he saw this, and he's like, this little guy's getting clobbered. I'm, we're going to do a different play, right? So he hikes the ball. He hands the ball off to this little guy, and then he just grabs this kid. I can't remember if it was like by the belt or by the scruff of his neck, but he just picks up this kid with one hand, and then he mows everybody down, right? And he just like tromps through the yard, mowing everybody down, makes a touchdown, 
but it's the little boy, right? The little tiny boy made the touchdown because the giant hairy man was carrying him <laughs> all the way. And I thought, you know what? That's a nice, that's a nice picture of God's grace. <laughs> like we make the touchdown and we're like, hey, look at me. But we're, we're, we're really like the little boy, like, ah, you know, we're just being like carried along by this giant monster. God's grace is, is disturbing and upending and humbling. None of us are strong enough to be everything that God calls us to be. But he pursues us in love. He pursues us in grace. And so I want to prepare you. We're going to read these stories. They're going to be weird. They're going to be confusing. I am looking at them through the lens of Jesus Christ. I, I see the full story of what God has done for us in Jesus Jesus came and took our place, took our sins upon himself. He lived the life we couldn't live. He died a substitutionary death for us. He rose from the dead, conquering sin and death for all time. And so we can then look through the lens of Christ back at these weird Old Testament stories. And we can see lessons here of God's grace overcoming man's failure. So some weird stories we're going to read. You're going to still have questions unanswered at the end of our morning time, but hopefully you'll have a bigger picture of God's grace. So Genesis chapter 27, starting in verse one. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, my son. And he answered, here I am. He said, behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then take your weapons, your quiver and your bow and go out to the field and hunt game for me and prepare for me delicious food such as I love and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her other son, Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock, bring me two good young goats, so that I may prepare for them from them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat, so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I'm a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go bring them to me. So this is a, a story of deception. It's a story of a blessing being stolen. Chapter 25 gives us another story, which is similar, where Jacob basically manipulates Esau and his hunger to sell his birthright. So we've got two stories here where through deception and through manipulation, Jacob is getting the blessing. And as I've said before, we don't look to everything that these Old Testament heroes do and say, this is how I should live. No, it's not. It's not how we should live. We're looking to see God's surprising grace despite their failures. And that's what we're going to be on the hunt for this morning. So let me pray for us because we need his spirit to help us. Weird stories, difficult stories. Um, I'm going to pray that God's spirit would meet us and help us to hear him today. God, thank you that you love us. We thank you that you speak in your word. We pray that you would help us. Um, God, those of us that have been studying the Bible for our whole lives struggle with some of these stories. Others of us walk in and uh, we, we just have questions. We're skeptical. 
God, I pray for all of us, no matter where we come from, if we're committed to walk with you or if we're just curious and we're just kind of trying to learn more, wherever we come from, Lord, will you give us the gift of open-mindedness? Will you give us the gift of tender-heartedness that we would receive your word? We would see what you're up to. We pray that you would surprise us with your grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I have a, a simple outline this morning as we look at the life of Isaac and, and Jacob. One is we'll see God's disturbing grace, and two, we'll see man's disturbing failure. Pretty simple. God's disturbing grace, it's disturbing. It's like not what we expect, and man's disturbing failure. We like to think that we're all better than this, but, you know, we, we keep surprising ourselves with our failures. So God's disturbing grace, man's disturbing failure. To start looking at God's disturbing grace, I want us to flip back a couple of pages to Genesis chapter 25. So we'll focus in on verses 21 through 23. Genesis chapter 25, God's disturbing grace. There's an ongoing theme throughout all of Scripture that God is, is turning upside down the normal pattern of life. We kind of have like, this is how the world normally works. And God says, nope, surprise, you're going to need me. You can't do it on your own. And so this is just one more of those kinds of stories. It's continuing this theme. A famous Jewish commentator and translator named Robert Alter says that the entire book of Genesis is about the reversal of the law of primogeniture. And so the law of primogeniture is a fancy word for the law of the firstborn. So it's a reversal of the law of the firstborn, right? Which in a larger context is a reversal of the strength of humanity. So humanity, we're always saying, you know, God, I can do this on my own. Leave me alone, right? Adam and Eve, like, leave me alone, God. We'll be our own gods. We can do this without you. We separate ourselves from God. We plunge the world into to sin and despair. And we do the same thing, right? Don't just blame Adam and Eve. We do the same thing. And so God comes in and he reverses that. He says, yeah, the strength of man is not enough. Your, your humanity is not enough. Your flesh is not enough. You need me. You need my spirit. You need my grace. And we see that played out again and again in all these Old Testament stories. So I want to frame it before we read chapter 25. I want to frame it with a couple of New Testament quotes. So it's just crystal clear for you, right? This is not me forcing this on the text. 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven. This is a great uh, memory verse for you. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. This is Paul talking about the good news of Jesus. The good news of Jesus is you're not strong enough to save yourself, but Jesus will save you anyway. God loves you. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Another great uh, illustration of this is in Romans 5, 6. Romans 5, 6, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One of my favorite verses is two verses later, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were weak, he died for the ungodly. So here's what this does. This undermines our thinking that somehow we're like religious enough to deserve God's favor. And we have to be very careful of this. We're religious people. You're, you're in a don't know if you know this, you might be here by accident, but um, this is a religious place, right? We're here in a church and you can think like, oh, I'm, I'm a good person. I showed up. God has to bless me now, right? Like I've done good things. He owes me. 
But, but no, we're, we're saved in our weakness. We're not, Jesus doesn't come after us because we're so good. Like Jesus is like, they're so good. They're trying so hard. I'm going to come and like save them the rest of the way. No, we were, we were rebels and he saved us. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 is another good verse. This is where Paul is wrestling with God about the thorn in his flesh. And so we don't know for sure if this was like a specific ongoing temptation of his flesh or if this was like a physical malady, but it was something that Paul just said, Lord, will you release me from this? Will you heal me? Will you set me free? And God said, no. And here's the specific language that Paul quotes about God's conversation with him about this thorn in the flesh. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Second Corinthians, the whole letter, he's basically laying out his philosophy of ministry and saying, yeah, I don't have it all together. I'm not perfect. I'm not failure free, but God works through me anyway because he's a gracious God and that's, that's how he operates. So that's the background, right? I think I've proved my point from the New Testament. Let's look at the story in Genesis 25. So starting in verse 21, Genesis 25, verse 21. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Okay, let's stop there for just a minute. Who's Isaac? And we're kind of jumping in and out this summer. Got a lot of new people coming in. Um, Abraham is the one that's the father of all the faithful, right? The, the people of Israel starts with Abraham. God says, hey, leave follow me. We're going to start a new thing through you, right? He makes this promise. Last week we saw, then God asked everything of Abraham and he offers his son, Isaac. We said, everything we can tell, Isaac was a willing sacrifice. So now when I see the rest of Isaac's life and I look back through the lens of that story in Genesis, it appears that that might've been the high point of Isaac's walk with God, right? Where Isaac saw, okay, I'm willing to be sacrificed for my tribe. And then God at the last minute saves me, offers a substitute ram instead. But then Isaac, like a lot of us, struggles to see like, okay, God, what are you doing now? Like, I've seen you be faithful, but, but where are you now? And so Isaac and Rebecca are barren. They can't have kids. And so somehow God's, God's got to work through them. He's got to provide the savior of the world through this tribe, through this people, but she's barren. So Isaac prays, says he prayed to the Lord, because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. So we're like, okay, Isaac's on the right path, right? He's praying, he's seeking the Lord, God grants his request, but the children, it says in verse 22, the children struggled together within her, and she said, if it's thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. That means to grasp at the heel. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore him. So he has these two sons and God says, well, I'm gonna, 
I'm going to upend what normally happens here. We've got two nations, two people groups, starting with your twins. One is going to continue the line of God's faithfulness. Uh, The people of God are going to come through one, and he's going to be the younger and the weaker one. And that's going to reverse, Robert Alter says, reverse this law of primogeniture, reverse this law of the firstborn. God's going to show his grace by working through the wimpy one. That's what God is saying. And so this is upsetting to our system. We're like, no, no, God, like this is the, this is the strong guy. You got to work through the strong guy. And he says, no, no, I'm going to work. I'm going to work through the weak one. And Jacob's name, Jacob is like, sometimes it's translated as supplanter or deceiver. It can also be translated as tripper. So a couple of different ways to think about this. In our lingo, we have this phrase of you're pulling his leg. Have you ever heard that before? Like when you're teasing someone or deceiving them, I'm pulling your leg, right? That's one way to translate it. Another way to think about it is like someone who's tripping, you know? It's like sneaking up behind you and and kicking your leg out from underneath you. So the word kind of carries some of these connotations. So Jacob, the younger, weaker one is also kind of the sneaky, manipulative one. He's the one that tricks his brother later on in this chapter. Again, I'm not going to go into all these details. Tricks his brother into selling his birthright. Now, the New Testament says that that was a character defect on Esau's part, right? That Esau is also to blame. But God says, I'm, I'm going to do something here through these two brothers. I'm going to purposefully work through the weaker one. We have to recognize this disturbing grace of God. This seems unfair to us sometimes that God says, I'm going to do things differently, especially if we're the stronger one, right? Like, God, oh, that's not fair. You should work through me. I'm the stronger one. I've done everything. I deserve your love. The scripture is clear that none of us deserve God's kindness. All of us stand before God with open hands, like I have nothing to offer. All I've brought to the table is sin and brokenness. And so we just have to realize in in the fairness of a biblical worldview, nothing is fair except judgment. That's the only thing that's fair. And then God brings grace. And we see that grace explicitly in Jesus Christ. Like he he lived like we should live. He took our place. He died as a substitute. Our sins were nailed on him. He rose from the dead. So we see it really clearly in Jesus, and then we see it in these mysterious ways in these old stories. As you think about the two different boys, it's interesting. It gives us more, more detail about what they were like. Verse 27 says, when the boys grew up, Esau, the hairy dude, was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So basically, he's a mama's boy, right? That's how we would say it, Central Texas language anyway. Um, so one guy, he's the big hairy dude. There's actually a, a medical condition of twins called transfusion syndrome, where one twin can get more of the nutrients from the other, other twin. It looks like, you know doesn't really matter all that much. We know the story's true either way, but it's interesting sometimes to see, okay, this is like a thing that happens biologically. Sometimes one twin will just get more of the nutrients and he'll come out a lot bigger, redder, and hairier. That, that, can, that can happen. And so this sets a course, right? One is he's the big dude. He's the hairy dude. He's the outdoorsman. He's the hunter. His dad loves the barbecue and his dad loves him more, right? And then the other one, he's a quiet man. He's a, he's a smooth man, right? Um, so we just have to clarify for those of you that are confused. We live in a world of gender confusion, right? Here, so we're kind of working out of ancient stereotypes 
of manliness here. Uh, we have, you know, changing standards and everything. But what it's saying here is we've got classically strong people and God says, that's not enough. The way this is described sometimes in scripture is some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we'll trust in the Lord our God, right? There's this theme again and again of you might trust in your flesh, your strength, your brains, your charm, or you can trust in the spirit of God. That's the option laid out before us. And God says, I'm going I'm to keep humbling the strong. The ones that think they can trust in themselves, I'm going to keep humbling them. So on the one hand, if, if you are strong, you're going to feel picked on today. But I think we're all strong next to somebody, right? <laughs> no matter how weak you feel, you're, all of us are strong compared to somebody. And what he's saying to us is you're not saved by how strong or how weak you are. You're saved by God. So we saw that a couple of weeks ago. It's not about your faith. Don't look at your quality of faith and go, you know, how, how faithy am I? But look to God. God is the one who saves. And that's the, the lesson here. So I don't know which of the one you kind of relate to more. Do you relate to the strong outdoorsman? And do you, do you relate to the wimpy, quiet one? I was reminded of, a, of an old movie. It's kind of a trashy movie from the 80s. It was a movie called Twins. Um, I don't know how many of you old people saw this movie. We had... Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito, and the little tagline was, only their mother can tell them apart. Now, that's funny if you're listening to this somewhere and you can't see the picture. It's funny because actually anyone could tell them apart, right? One's a bodybuilder and one's a little tiny dude. Um, and that's, that's the kind of almost comical contrast that the text is setting up. Like the text is really setting up this strong contrast. Like one dude is a man's man. He was strong. He was a hunter. And the other guy was weak. And God says, I'm going to work through the weak one. Deuteronomy chapter 7 is another great cross-reference. Way later in the history of Israel, God is clarifying to them, I didn't save you because you were an impressive tribe. I didn't love you because you were lovable. I loved you because I love you, right? God is positioning his grace in himself. God saves you because God is a saving God. God loves you because God is a loving God. He doesn't say, oh, you, you went to Sunday school last week? All right, you're in. You gave more to the church? Okay, you're in, right? Like, and just to be clear, preachers like, we, we do that, right? I mean, there's a lot of preachers in town that'll say, oh no, he does like you better if you give more. Now, just to be clear, I like you better if you give more, <laughs> but God doesn't, okay? I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. I, I'm going to try to like you the same either way. That's why I don't even look at the giving statements so that I can have a clean heart before you, right? God says, I'm going to love you because I'm gracious. God loves you because Jesus died on the cross for your sins. God was like, you're a mess, man. I'm going to have to clean up this mess. And he, he was so serious about cleaning up our mess that he sent Jesus to take our mess upon himself. So that's God's grace. Romans 9 talks about this as a picture of God's disturbing, choosing grace. He says, yeah, this, this story of Jacob and Esau is an example of what is sometimes translated as election or choosing. Depending on your Bible translation, it's either election or choosing. There's this other weird, scary word, predestination. Raise your hand if you've heard that word, predestination. Okay, scary, scary word. Um, and so this is something Christians divide on. And so what I'm going to try to do is lay out the case that yes, God is bigger and scarier than we ever imagined. And yet that bigness 
that power, that sovereignty of God is, is actually turned as sweetness, as adopting love for us. And so this, we could study and argue about this for hours, but I kind of want to just focus our attention on two big truths that we see. One truth is God is in control. God is bigger than our plans. He is, the word is sovereign. He's king. He's all-powerful, right? God's sovereignty. There's this other truth, and that is that human beings are responsible. And so probably, depending on what kind of church you grew up in, your church emphasized one or the other. That's just kind of how we do as humans. We end up falling off the horse on one side or the other, right? And so a lot of times we grew up in churches like God's in control, and it can, if it's only emphasized that God's in control, you can kind of fall off the horse towards fatalism. Whatever. The Muslim phrase for that is inshallah, right? Like whatever, we'll see what happens. God's in control. Kind of give up your hands, right? But the Bible teaches man is responsible. Man is responsible. We're not robots. We're not puppets, right? No, here's the danger though. If you've grown up in that side that emphasizes man's responsibility, our free will, what we have to do, Again, that's biblical, but sometimes you can forget, no, God's bigger than you. His, his grace is disturbing. It'll like turn up uh, everything upside down. It'll like reverse what we thought, upset our plans, but it's still grace. A, a way to define grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. So it's God's kindness. It's his saving power that's given to us. We didn't earn it. It's not because we were so impressive that God saved us, because, but because of his kindness and his grace. So as Christians, we've got to hold these two things together. We've got to hold that God is, God is really in charge of the world. And so predestination, choosing, election, it falls in that category. Yeah, God does what God wants to do. God's all powerful. I can't tell him what to do. And then I'm, I'm really responsible. So the way I work this out, other Christians work this out in different ways. So I'm just going to give you my view and, and move on. And we can talk more about it later. You can email me if you have more questions about this. My view is that when, when we're saved, when I place my faith in Jesus, the Bible teaches me later to be able to look back on that and say, and that was all God. Like God did that. God gets the credit for that. And that's how I, that's how I handle this concept of predestination, choosing God's election. I look at like, I have, I have faith in Jesus. I, I chose to accept what Jesus has done for me on the cross. I gave my life to him. And then as I grow in my faith, I look back and I'm like, man, God just saved me. I didn't deserve, I was running the other direction. He interrupted my life. He grabbed hold of me by the scruff of the neck. And he's like, you're coming with me. You're in my family now. God walked into the spiritual orphanage and he picked me up. He said, I love you. So that's how I see it. I see it as a picture of God's love. Now then, we've still got questions, right? <laughs> like, wait, how does that work? Like, how, how can that make sense if God is choosing and predestining? How, how do we make sense of man's responsibility? And my answer is like, I don't know. The Bible just says I'm responsible, right? Like, I don't have a full answer for that, but I'm, I'm happy to, to wrestle that out with you and talk to you about it more in the future. Here's two, I think, very specific applications that God's choosing his disturbing, upsetting grace Two applications that we have in the New Testament. So this is taught in Romans chapter 9, which pulls in the story about Jacob and Esau. He uses that as a specific illustration. So Romans chapter 9. It's also taught in Ephesians chapter 1. Here's the thing. In Romans chapter 9, he's humbling the proud who think they're saved by being religious. And Paul's like, no, nobody was ever saved by being religious. God's always like choosing the weaker instead of the strong. 
So this is, this is dangerous for those of you that are proud. Those of you that are religiously proud, I fall into this as well. We start to think, oh, look, look at what I did. I'm a regular. I'm religious. God loves me. He has to bless me. I've done all these good things. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. It's his grace. It's not your strength. It's his strength. So Paul's teaching election there to buttress this, this bigger, to reinforce this bigger argument that he's making throughout the whole book of Romans that we're only saved by God's grace. We're not saved by our works. Ephesians 1, he's attacking from the other side. Ephesians 1, he's coming to those of us that grew up as outsiders and always felt just dirty and stupid and weak and ashamed. He's like, no, 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 no. That's not enough to separate you from God. God chose you before the foundation of the world. God loved you. He picked you out. He brought you into his family. He's adopted you in love. And so I think the, the best way to understand, like, our, our brains are exploding when we think about stuff like predestination and these confusing philosophical arguments that people get into. I think it's really helpful to look at the application of these doctrines. Two applications. It humbles the proud. God's disturbing grace tells you you're not that awesome. And it also blesses the weak. You're not so shameful that God can't love you. He's pulling you into his family. You belong to him. And if you struggle with that, maybe you don't need to look more at confusing doctrines like election. Maybe you just need to look to the cross. That's where you see God's favor and his disposition towards you. He gave himself for you on the cross. Okay, the second point is, that was like a whole sermon right there, sorry. Second point is man's disturbing failure. Man's disturbing failure. We'll go a little faster here. Uh, And this reinforces what I was trying to say before. We look back in the Old Testament, we see Old Testament heroes do dumb things, and we should not say, oh, I must imitate every dumb thing I see in the Old Testament, right? We have to separate the different kinds of genres or styles of literature. There's narrative literature where you got to read the story, let it impact you like a story, and then interpret it in light of the other clearer passages, right? Um, So you can't just say, oh, I see a thing, I'm going to do that thing right? I'm just going to imitate everything that happened in these Old Testament stories. No, you read Proverbs to understand wisdom. You read the New Testament to understand how, how Jesus connects the Old Testament, right? You, you read what God has said clearly to understand these weirder, more mysterious stories. So God said, I'm going to choose the weaker over uh, the stronger. I'm going to choose the younger over the older. I'm going to upset this law of firstborn. I'm going to upset the way the world works so I can show my power and my grace but Jacob and Rebecca think still they got to make it happen. They're not trusting God to do what he said he was going to do. They're saying, yeah, we really need to manipulate the circumstances. And so here's a big application before we even look at it. Don't step outside of God's ethical boundaries that he's already laid out for you to try to help him out, right? Like God tells you what to do. He's got clear ethical boundaries. Old Testament summarizes them in the Ten Commandments. The New Testament summarizes it in the Law of Love. Do what God clearly told you to do and then trust him while you're waiting. Sometimes you're like, man, he hasn't shown up. Okay, I just got to wait. And so Rebecca and Jacob should have waited, but here's what they do. Genesis 27, 11. Jacob said to Rebecca's mother, behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man and I'm a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. He's like, this isn't going to work, right? He's going to know it's not me. So Isaac was getting old. He was losing his eyesight, but he could still, you know, he had still some of his senses. He could feel like hairy son or smooth son. He could tell the difference. 
His mother said to him, let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice, go, bring them to me. So he went, he took them, brought them to his mother. His mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. So she had him get goats while Esau the hunter was out hunting. She said, just go get some from our flock and then I'll prepare them in the right way. And he'll think that they were prepared by Esau. So Isaac favored Esau, the big, strong, hairy hunter. He favored his barbecue. He was gonna give the blessing to him even though God had told him, no, we're gonna bless the younger. So then Rebecca went and got some of the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house. She put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats, she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread, which she had prepared into the hand of her son, Jacob. So here's what he's doing. He's, he's basically playing dress up. He's putting on an Esau costume. Any of you ever dress up as a kid? Enjoy Halloween? We had, I was the youngest of three kids. And so we had like a a box of, of used smelly costumes from my brothers and sisters. And I, love, I would just play in those things for My sister's here, she's laughing. I, I would play in that box of costumes for hours. I love to dress up. I love to try to become something stronger than what I was. Like pretend I was a hero that I wasn't really in reality, you know, and we put on those 70s costumes with the tiny little thing you could barely breathe through. I love that. I found a picture online of a kid dressing up to be the Black Panther. Um, superhero, rah, you know, it's like a four-year-old. Ooh, I'm scared, right? How many of us, how many of, how many of you did that when you were kids? Raise your hand if you did that when you were kids. Okay. I won't make you raise your hands for this next thing. How many of us still do that today, right? Yeah, some of you. I don't mean, you know, like the Halloween costumes. I just mean, like, we, we feel like we have to pretend before God, I feel like I'm not going to get the blessings of my dad or my mom or the people around me or the people at work unless I dress up, unless I pretend that I'm something that I'm not. And then we bring that into our relationship with God. I've got I've to pretend. I've got to speak like fancy language or God won't hear my prayers. I've got to do impressive things or God won't bless me with this favor. I've got I've to be a certain kind of way or God's going to ignore me. I've got to get God's attention. It's the beautiful thing, beautiful thing with the gospel is We don't have to pretend anymore, right? Like the gospel is simultaneously the most insulting and most blessing news in the world. Jack Miller joked and said, cheer up, you're worse off than you think. (laughs) So cheer up, you're more sinful than you ever imagined. But God loves you more in Christ than than you ever dreamed. It's like the, the bad news and the good news. So here we see, we see Jacob dressing up. The story goes on. He goes into his father. My father, he said, here I am. Where are you? Who are you, my son? He's suspicious, right? Like the voice doesn't sound right. Jacob said to his father, I'm Esau, your firstborn. I've done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you found it so quickly, my son? <laughs> like he's suspicious. How'd you go out and hunt this game so quickly? And Jacob said, because the Lord, your God, granted me success. Again, he's, he's lying. So, okay, just to be clear, in case I haven't been clear, don't lie, right? Don't manipulate. Don't break God's commandments to achieve God's goals in your life. This is a failure here. Now, again, God, God works despite our failures, but that doesn't excuse us to do the things he's told us not to do. 
He says the voice of, is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. So he's feeling in verse 24, he said, are you really my son Esau? There's just this back and forth that you're supposed to feel the tension. Like, oh no, is he going to be discovered, right? And he answered him, said, I am. Verse 25 says, then bring it near me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him and Isaac smelled of the smell of his garments and blessed him. Think what it would have been like to be Jacob. Finally, my father loves me. But he doesn't think it's Jacob. He's, he's loving somebody else, right? This is really a heartbreaking story. Jacob is like clawing and scrapping and wrestling and trying, trying to get this blessing. And he already manipulated his brother in chapter 25. That's the story we didn't see where he gets his brother to sell his birthright. And now he's manipulated and deceived with his mother's help, his father Isaac, and gotten the blessing officially from his dad. But does his dad really love him or does he love Esau? It's a heartbreaking story. The story of the gospel is that all of us are hungry for this blessing. Some of us, if we're strong, we settle for the human blessing. We settle for the blessing of a father who maybe favors us because we're stronger than the other kids. But that's still not enough before a holy God. We still need God's blessing. We're still outside of paradise. Some of us don't have the dad's blessing. We're just, we're so hungry for it. We're dying for it. And we're just like fighting and scrapping and we're putting on whatever costume we can find to dress up and try to trick other people, or God into blessing us. Two books that I think are super helpful. If you're, if you're struggling with this reality of the, identi- the blessed identity that you have in the gospel, two books that, books that I think are helpful. One is called The Cure. It's by a guy named John Lynch. One of our pastors, uh, Jim Wilson, introduced me to this book, but it's The Cure by John Lynch. And it's kind of like fantasy, kind of a dream story. You know, he's like, imagine you're going into this room And in one room, everyone's pretending. Everyone's wearing a mask. Everyone's wearing a costume. And it's the room of pleasing God. And these people are faking it. And they're stiff. And there's no joy. And they've come to believe that religion is wearing a religious costume and pretending you're something you're not. Then he goes to this other room, and it's the room of trusting God. And those people have learned to be real, to confess their sins, and to trust that Jesus is enough to forgive their sins and to make them righteous. It's another book that we've studied a lot at our church called The Gospel-Centered Life. It's a little more systematic, um, less of the uh, fantasy dream world stuff, and just more Bible studies showing you the key texts that lay this stuff out. And it says, one of the things we struggle with is instead of accepting the grace, the disturbing grace of the righteousness of Jesus, instead of accepting that as a free blessing, we go over here and we try to create blessings by putting on these costumes of false righteousness, right? And so we think, if I do well enough at work, then I'll have job righteousness. We don't say it that way, but that's in reality what we're doing, right? If I do enough at work, if I'm successful enough at work, then I'll have job righteousness, career righteousness, success righteousness, and God will have to bless me and other people will have to bless me. But at the end, we're just a slave to work and we're still lacking the blessing of God. It might be family 
righteousness. This is something a lot of us fall into, grew up in a broken home, and you're like, I'm going to have a perfect family. I'm not going to make those mistakes, right? I've struggled with this one. I'm going to have a perfect family. We're going to do everything right. And you're still left wanting the blessing of God. Because no perfect family can, can carry that burden of our alienation from God. It might be relationships. It might be pleasure. What are the false righteousnesses that you're, you're picking up and putting on? Colossians says that we should have this daily faith where we take off sin, set it aside, say that's, that's not going to win God's blessing, and we put on Christ. Only in Christ do we have the blessing of God. By faith, we, we step into Christ and we say, he's my only hope. And we are robed in his righteousness, true righteousness. Here's the irony. When we make an idol out of our job or our family or money, or it might be for you creativity or authenticity, whatever it is, when you make an idol out of those false righteousnesses, you end up ruining them. You break them, right? Because no job can, can stand up to that pressure you're putting on your job. If your job is your God, nobody's going to want to work with you. You're going to be miserable. If your family is your God, you're going to be so out of control, you're going to break your family. But if Jesus is your God, he's going to free you to stumble and to make mistakes and to have problems, but still to love that family, still to love that job and to do good work, still to be creative, to be authentic, whatever these lures of righteousness are. As we put on Christ, it actually frees us to be of more use in these other zones and these other realities. So here's the thing. When we look at Isaac and we look at Jacob and we see their failures, again, we recognize I'm not supposed to imitate them, right? They are not my, my rule of ethics. I get that in other parts of the Bible, but also it should encourage us that God works through broken people. And so if God can work through Isaac and Jacob, he can work through you and me. So Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. We are broken pots. And this is God's plan. If you want to know how ministry is supposed to work, the entire book of 2 Corinthians is Paul just saying, yeah, this, this is God's plan for the world. He gives us the gospel and then he distributes it to us, us broken people. And he's like, okay, go share this. Go love people. Go share my message. And they're going to see that it's not you, but it's God. They'll see your limp and they'll recognize, no, it's God's grace that they're saved by, not their strength. So that doesn't mean we pursue doing the wrong thing so that, you know, Paul talks about this in Romans. He's like, so should we sin more so that grace may abound? No, no way. No, that's not what he's saying. But he's saying when we fail, Jesus forgives us. We get up, we put on Christ, we move forward. And we have this treasure in jars of clay. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, 5. What we proclaim is not ourselves. We proclaim Jesus Christ with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. He says in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. God does it that way on purpose. He works through broken people like you and me to share this truth. One of my favorite um, types of art, formats of art, is this Japanese art form called kintsugi, where they take broken pots and they weld it back together with gold filling 
or with platinum or silver. And so you have these pots with these cracks that are now the most sparkly, beautiful part of the pot. And, and there's like this healing where the breaks are. It reminds me of this, this section from Paul where he says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. The, the power, the grace of God moves through the cracks and the brokenness. So we'll wrap up thinking about Jacob particularly. Um, one of my favorite preachers is Tim Keller. And Keller talks about how, man, Jacob, Jacob still never really got his father's blessing in the emotional sense, right? Like he, he, still, he still didn't have it. Like he, still, he was still hungry. He was still wanting it. He tricked his way into it. He deceived his way into it. But that's different than his dad saying, well done, I, I love you. I'm, I'm proud of you. He's still hungry. Genesis 32 is another, one of the weirdest stories in the Bible. <laughs> and I'm sorry we can't spend more time on it. I'm hoping to come back to the Jacob stories in a year or two and just go through all these stories in Genesis But in this story, we've got this place where Jacob is finally moved in his older age by faith to begin moving back to the promised land, but he's scared because he knows his brother Esau wanted to kill him. He'd left the promised land running away from Esau, wanting to kill him. Now he's coming back thinking God is moving in this direction, but also thinking, I don't know if you're ever in this place with God and what he's teaching you to do. Okay, God, I'll do what you're telling me to do, even though it's probably going to kill me, right? (laughs) That's kind of where he is in Genesis 32. And he's like dividing up his forces and sending his family over here and his flocks over here. And there's all this intrigue and he's alone. And the sun goes down and it's a very scary moment. It's a very tense moment. And at this point in his life, he's fully expecting his wild, hairy brother Esau to come and kill him. And some man that he can't see comes and attacks him in the night. He's expecting Esau to come and kill him. But as the story goes on, it turns out that it was actually God that attacked him in the middle of the night. (laughs) Like, is that what it means to walk with God? Like God shows up and beats you up in the middle of the night? This This is like too good to not be true, right? Like this is so bizarre. No religious manipulator would have made up this story. This is the God of the universe. Sometimes he comes to us in the middle of the night. And yeah, smackdown, right? Keller says, yeah, God clobbered him. That's how he got the blessing. God clobbered him. There's actually a wrestling match, and it appears in the text that, J- that Jacob's like winning, but then there's this turn where God's like, all right, and like touches his hip. And so then Jacob walks the rest of his life with a limp, but he begged, he begged God to give him his blessing, and, and God blessed him. God gave him a new name. He said, now your name's going to be Israel, for you have wrestled with God and prevailed. That becomes the name of God's people. Paul says in, in Romans that we're also the Israel of God by faith, right? Like we're also those who wrestle with God and get a blessing. So just to be clear, these stories make it clear that he didn't win the blessing by being so tough, but he was willing to wrestle with God. He's willing to pursue God. And I think this encourages us as well. You might, you might feel like God is not being fair to you. You might feel like he's like trying to clobber you in the middle of the night. Just say, God, please, will you give me life? Will you give me grace? Help me. Give me your blessing. If we beg God for his blessing, he will give it. Again, we see that. We see that proven. We got these mysterious, weird stories in the Old Testament. We see that proven in Jesus Christ. 
who says, I'm so passionate about you that I'm, I'm coming into this world. I'm going to take your sins upon myself. I'm going to give you life. Jesus came in, Hebrews 4.15 says, he's able to sympathize with us in every way, right? He, he was tempted in every way, yet without sin. Jesus came in and he wrestled sin and death and he prevailed and he gives us by his grace, the blessing of God. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us and that you've come after us, that you've saved us. God, we confess still, even as we study this, we're, we're confused and these stories are are strange. They're odd to us. There's cultural distance. There's also just our own ignorance. We, we pray that your spirit would continue to stir in us an awareness of your kindness, your grace to us. And thank you that you've given us such a clear picture in Jesus Christ who takes our sin, who gives us life, who saves us. We thank you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.